Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 702 with Aaron Colby. The best way to cover your ass is to have employees feel like the environment's fair. And every 10 lawsuits I see on that allege wrongful termination, which is basically saying I got fired for a wrong reason, right? Unfair reason. One in 10 has some validity. This is just anecdotal. Legal validity, meaning there's actually a legal reason it could be wrongful. Uh, five out of 10, though, I would say are unfair. Um, but the law doesn't protect unfair. The law protects discrimination and retaliation in that context. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Don Professional, it does more than just save greasy oil slick and ducks. It also happens to be the number one dish detergent found in almost every commercial kitchen with long lasting suds that clean 58% more dishes per sink. To learn more, go to www.pgpro.com and experience the grease fighting power of Don Professional dishwashing liquid. You can find Don Professional at Sam's Club or by visiting samsclub.com slash Don professional this episode is brought to you by bento box a hospitality platform that empowers restaurants through their website during these uncertain times in the industry bento box is supporting restaurants through online ordering and gift cards and restaurant unstoppable listeners get 50 percent off their setup fee get started today by visiting getbento.com slash unstoppable For years, restaurant owners have been pleading for more integration in their restaurants, and they finally got it. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, all-in-one, restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with POS systems, payroll providers, and food and beverage vendors. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and a free inventory build in Restaurant 365, a value of $5,000. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Aaron Colby. My man, Aaron, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm feeling unstoppable. Yeah, you are, man. I can't wait to get into this. So Aaron Colby is a graduate of the University of Michigan in Southwestern University of Law. Today, he's practicing law at Davis Wright Tremaine LLP, where he represents employees in single plaintiff, multi-plaintiff, and class action disputes involving allegations of wrongful termination, discrimination, retaliation, harassment, and wage and hour issues such as overtime, meal and rest breaks, and off-the-clock work. Aaron defends organizations on public accommodations claims under the Americans with Disabilities Act and California UNRWA Act in claims of defamation, trademark, and other business-related matters. Man, you got a lot going on. There's a lot you covered there. That guy sounds impressive. (laughs) That guy's very impressive. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing uh, the 20 employee legal hotspots. So, I am listening to you guys out there, and a lot of my listeners have been asking me to go deeper in some of these details, uh, some of these uh, more... I don't want to call them boring because they're important, but they're just the, the, the things that we can get lost in the minutia, right? The things that are just can, can kind of be convoluted and, and hard to understand and to pull back these layers and make it crystal clear for you guys. So I hope we do that today. But before we dive into the good stuff, I want to get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us, Aaron? Be direct and know your audience. All right. Dive into that. Why is that your, your choice today? 
be direct because when people ask questions from a lawyer, uh, especially you're paying by the hour a lot of times, you want to know the answer to your question. But in any communication, you want to you want to know your audience. Um, who are you speaking to, right? I asked you today when I got on the show, who's your audience? Are they operators? Are they lawyers? Are they employees? Um, because it, it should impact how you speak, how you talk to them, what, what message you're trying to communicate, even though the substance may be the same, how you get there may be different. Yes. Speak with intention. I can't help but think about some of the advice we get from past guests when we're approaching tables. Not every table is exactly the same. You have to understand what situation that table's in. Is it a date? Are they coming from a funeral? Uh, is it a bunch of people out for a good time and want to be entertained? You got to attune to these people. You got to attune to your audience. Great way to get this thing started. So, I want to give our listeners an idea of who you are. Uh, yes, we, we got a good taste of what your credentials are in the introduction, but I want my listeners to know, like, and trust you. So who is Aaron Colby? Let us get to know you a little bit. Um, well, there's a lot about me, but for here, I'm an employment law attorney. Um, <laughs> I specialize in California employment law. Um, why California is because um, from an employment law perspective, generally speaking, you got to comply as an employer with federal law. Um, across the country. It applies to every state. And then you have to also comply with the state that you're in. And so California heavily regulated, a lot of operators, a lot of opportunities for California employees. Number one downloaded state, by the way. So a little homage to California going through the specific details of their legal issues out here, but keep going. Well, the country of California has a a huge economy, (laughs) huge amount of regulations, huge need, need for lawyers. And you know, a lot of times you'll have clients uh, frustrated, operators frustrated, and they say, I'm going to leave the state. And I look, I said, no, you're not. <laughs> um, but it, I, I focus in employment law. And what that really means is, is that uh, issues that are employee facing, yeah, they're legal issues, but you know, oftentimes they're people issues. Yeah. Uh, well, why employment law? Like, what, is, what was it about employment law specifically that sang to you and drew you to it? The pe- uh, people issues. Yeah. Um, you know, I, there's... There's people issues in any type of law, but I think that it's more prevalent in employment law. For instance, you know, if, if you're dealing with a, a lease of a, a piece of property, right, you're opening up the restaurant, you're, it's back and forth with the landlord and a lot of um, redlining of a long-form lease. Yeah. Um, employment law, yeah, there can be redlining of long-form agreements, but oftentimes it's how do you communicate, who are you communicating with, um, what is the issue, and what are the incentives on each side, right? Yep. And we mentioned in the beginning of the uh, introduction, graduate of the University of Michigan, where you studied communication, psychology, and uh, sociology. So it seems like there's been this, this theme in your life where you're just fascinated by people in general. And I'm, I'm like, if I could go back to school, it would be something in some type of human studies. I, I'm right there with you. So it's there's definitely a trend here, right? There's a trend, um, a trend of avoiding math and science. Um, <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah, you tend to what you're good at. Um, I liked. I like those topics. Um, and now in my practice, it's, it's very focused on trying to resolve disputes. Um, my intro, yeah, there was a lot to it, but mostly it's I resolve disputes in these areas of the law. Um, yeah. Employment law, I think, is um, you have the most opportunity to do that because, again, you're, you're dealing with people. You're dealing with their lives um, as opposed to a, a corporate entity or a piece of real estate or a piece of intellectual property. Yeah. And did you know that Jason Berkowitz was a, a psychology major as well? I do. And I know Jason. Yeah, that doesn't he's surprise the reason me. why you're on my radar. Uh, <laughs> he, we actually talked about you a little bit during our recording together. So uh, here I am ready to dive deep into these 20 employment legal hotspots. So we might as well, we got a lot to cover 20 of these hotspots. So let's dive in. What's the first one? Um, well, I, I tried to structure these in a way that it goes through the course of employment or the course of the relationship you have with a worker. 
um, starting from when you meet them, interviewing them, um, all the way through the end of the relationship, however it goes. So these are in five subcategories. Um, the first one being hiring and decision and process. So th- sorry, the hiring decision and process. Yeah, the hiring decision and process. Right. Five. There are five categories that you're going to encounter. Um, legal disputes, legal risk with when you're employee facing, right? When you hear employee law, that's how I kind of consider it, like legal issues that are employee facing. Um, and just to kind of set the table, <laughs> pun intended, there, there's union issues a lot of times. You'll hear about collective bargaining issues, collective bargaining agreements, um, and that's a whole extra layer to all of this. Um, the, all of these rules, nearly all of these rules apply in a union environment, except there's an additional requirement of collective bargaining and complying with the union agreement. But when I'm talking today, let's just assume that we're in a non-unionized environment because it's complicated enough out there. Yeah, I'm not going to dive into that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. When, when you scare off the podcast host, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, you know, the, the first bucket and hiring decisions and process, right? Um, the risk, the relationship starts right there. Before they're your, they're, before you have employed them or you engage them right when they come in. Um, there can be failure to hire claims um, of all sorts, just like there are wrongful termination claims. And so you've got to be conscious that when you join somebody, you know, what, what's happening. Um, but before you even get there, you've got to make the decision. I've got a need. I've got a function um, that I need to fulfill in my, in my business, right? Um, let's say it's a PR function. Uh, do we hire somebody to be in-house PR or do we go outside and hire a PR agency, right? Yeah. Um, or if it's a different type of function, a catering function, right? Do we go to a staffing agency and have them just provide um, employees or workers to us um, on the four or five events we need during the year? And so you have to look at the need. It's not always just as simple as I have a server, I have a back-of-house employee, full-time employee, direct hire, W-2. Um, the thing is, though, it is not always as advertised. And you'll have a staffing agency or an individual come to you sometimes and say, we can be an independent contractor, and you run into trouble there because there's the concept of joint employment. Mm. Um, joint employment is, is federal, so it's everywhere, and there's, there's a standard, but it's also in California. It's a very high standard, and the standard is you can have multiple employers at once. Um, and so if I am employed by a staffing agency, um, and I am sent by that staffing agency into a restaurant to go you know, serve at an event... Both the agency and the restaurant are my employer for liability purposes. They're not going to have to pay twice, but let's say the agency doesn't pay for my wages. Um, the, the restaurant is on the hook, mm. and I can sue the restaurant. Now, what will happen is if the restaurant's got good legal counsel, they, their contract with the agency said, agency, you're going to pay the workers, and if not, you're going to indemnify us, the restaurant. So the hot spot here seems like make sure that there's specification within the contract that takes you off the hook in case somebody doesn't get paid. That's right. And it's not that it's going to take you off the hook, but it's going to give you cover, right? Okay. It's going to say, hey, staffing agency, we're hiring you to pay employees, right? Yeah. Um, if you don't, and we, the restaurant, get sued for it, staffing agency, you're going to cover that. That's the concept of indemnification. Yeah, and this is a hot topic right now, especially with all the, the gig economy that we're that is on the rise uh, and leaking its way into the hospitality industry. I think there's a past few, I think Snag, or Snagit or Snag was one of the companies that I, I interviewed in the past. Uh, are there any that are coming to your mind right now that should be triggers or somebody... I think anybody, it is extremely difficult to, um, especially in California, to employ as opposed to make a contractor, anyone that's driving because you've got reimbursement requirements, you've got minimum wage requirements, meal and rest break requirements, um, certain scheduling and break requirements. So oftentimes, if you are getting a service 
um, a delivery service, if the service you're getting is involves driving, you want to ask that service provider, is this person you know, categorized as an employee by you, a contractor? How are you handling it? Are you reimbursing? Um, yeah, basically, the hotspot is do business with people that comply with the law. Okay. And um, I'm assuming like the, the big ones, Grubhub, um, Uber Eats, uh, the, the, uh, like, we're, are there any hot like companies in, in particular that we should be aware of? Well, I, you know, I don't know. My firm represents a lot of companies, <laughs> so I don't want to talk about specific yeah, companies, you, but I, I can you. tell you that the gig economy itself is, um, is struggling with this overall. Um, the gig economy uh, has to deal with the independent contractor test in different states. And you know what? Let's talk about that. That's number two on the list. Wait, real quick before we get into number two, because yeah. there's something that you mentioned at the beginning of this. Um, when you're when you're hiring, you can't mm-hmm. just like hire willy-nilly. You have to hire for a specific role. Um, is it worth unpackaging that a little bit? It kind of caught my ear. Well, I, I think when you're – you can hire, but you got to set expectations upon hire. So, um, and so you're, you know, if you're an at will employee, that means you can be terminated or you can quit, um, with or without cause. You better establish that at hire. Um, it also, though, you should be clear about that means the terms of employment too, right? If you hire someone to be a host and you require them on some night to be a server, you've got a right to do that. Um, legal right though and a, a human right, those are two different things. And trying to convince that host on that one night to be a server, that might be a different thing. And so, you know, in the hire package, you want to put clear, hey, you're at will. This is your position. It can change at any time. But put a job description in there. I often get asked the question, why do we need job descriptions? Well, one is to set the expectations, right? It's very hard to hold somebody accountable and do all the things you're told to do, like document, performance evaluations, etc. If you don't have something to point back to and say, this is what we're expecting out of you. Unsatisfactory performance about what? Back to communication, right? Back Clear to communication. communication. You have to communicate to them what the expectations are. And again, this covers your own ass. Absolutely. It yeah. covers your own ass. But also, the best way to cover your ass is to have employees feel like the environment's fair. Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, 10, if every 10 lawsuits I see on, that allege wrongful termination, which is basically saying I got fired for a wrong reason, right? Mm. Unfair reason. I'd say about, about 1 in 10 has some validity. This is just anecdotal. Um, legal validity, meaning there's actually a legal reason it could be wrongful. Uh, five out of 10, though, I would say f- are unfair. Mm. Um, but the law doesn't protect unfair. The law protects discrimination and retaliation in that context. Um, but, you know, if as an operator, where it's kind of a loss is when you have to pay me. Mm. Like, I realize I'm negative dollars. And so when you're terminating someone, your concept shouldn't be, is it right or wrong? It should be, hey, w- w- how can I avoid this person going to see a lawyer? Usually it's communicating. It doesn't always mean communicating the reason. Um, and you can't always accomplish the goal, right? You can't, ac- you can't get inside somebody's head. And if someone's going to go, you know, force you to spend legal dollars, so be it. Um, but oftentimes that's what makes a termination easier. Um, when you're saying to somebody, Hey, I'm sorry, you didn't meet our expectations. If their first reaction, right or wrong, if their first reaction is, well, what? I, this is this seems unfair. I've never even heard of this. As far as I knew, I was killing it. Yeah, and and that is now you're in a negative situation, and we're not talking legal. We're talking about uh, it's a conflict situation. You're trying to avoid this, right? You're trying to have a smooth transition. Yeah, and we get into this with my interview with Jason uh, Berkowitz. So if you guys are interested in more, I'm pretty sure we talk about just basically documenting the. If if somebody's steering off course, you have to document that they are steering off course, and you also have to coach them back to where the job done right looks like and you have to document all this so you have something that you can use 
in a situation where you do have to go to law, there's documentation saying, hey, we talked about this. He knew about this or she knew about this. Um, I think we can move on from this. So you, you wanted to start. I, I, mean, I held you back for number two. Uh, you're, you're chomping at the bit. You no, it's okay. It. I, uh, <laughs> I, it, you know, it's funny when at the very top you said, I brought a lawyer on so he can clear things up. And I'm thinking, oh, I better be concise and direct. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, had, we got a lot to cover, too. So let's just dive into number two. I got independent uh, contractor versus employee uh, so 1099 versus W-2, what do you got? Well, what I got is that's a legal question, okay? So the concept is if someone's going to do work for you and you're going to pay them, there's only two ways to pay them, either you know through payroll as an employee where you issue a W-2 at the end of the year or as a contractor via 1099, you, pay, you know, issue them a 1099 at the end of the year. What about the third obvious way under the table? Well, there's always that, <laughs> like what's going on here today is the cash you're going to slip me under the table for this appearance. <laughs> Wait, whoa, I so, don't know that. <laughs> um, but no, the, and even, on, even under the under the table, um, if you're going to actually document the under the table more than, I think it's, it's $600. I'm not giving tax advice, but I think it's $600. That's when you have to issue a, a 1099 to the individual. So... But the concept is, is you and the individual do not get to make the decision. The law makes the decision. Um, and there's a legal test on whether the person should be a classified as a 1099 or as a W-2, classified as a contractor or as an employee. And so you hear about misclassification cases. It's this. Um, and, and talking about the gig economy, um, it is hard to, particularly hard in my opinion, to pay employees um, who are driving. You've got travel time um, and they're hourly. You know, the other classification we'll get to later is exempt, non-exempt. And that's, you know, hourly salary. And, and these drivers typically hourly, typically um, work long hours, um, have our need base. So they're not always just available to, to take a half hour rest break or half, excuse me, half hour meal break and rest breaks. Um, the, you know, depending on the, the geographic market they're serving, the distance they drive, often dictates the reimbursements that you're obligated to give as an employer, um, not obligated to give a contractor. So it becomes, and there's workers' comp, which is much higher when you're in the car. And so it becomes cost prohibitive to make it an employee. Oftentimes employers, um, back to the first item on the list, look to a staffing agency or some other um, service to provide um, them with what the delivery, um, because they know I, I can't, you know, I'm a, I'm a pizza company. It's too expensive to hire delivery drivers and, and comply with the law. Um, but it is state by state. You'll see lawsuits all over the country, um, in certain States where, um, they're using tips to offset minimum wage, um, or, and they're, or they're using, um, expense reimbursements that takes them below the minimum wage. That's a claim you see in California. There's a statute that says you must reimburse expenses, and we'll get to that. Um, but it's often why companies veer away from the the employee relationship. You, you when you contract, um, there's less rely, there's less liability on you, right? Theoretically, yes. But even if you put it in the con- yeah, so if you if you hire an independent contractor, there's less liability because the the, the nature of the relationship is the contractor is a business and they're taking on the liability, they're insuring themselves, yeah. they're doing all of that. However. Even if it, you do a contract, it doesn't matter. The law looks right through the contract and says, what's the reality? So I think it's important to kind of, where's the line between independent contractor and employee? And, and is it that an independent contractor is basically independent in the sense that you're not monitor, you're not educating them, you're not training them, you're paying them to do a job, and it's independent of your influence? The, the independent contractor employee test is a state-by-state test. It's incredibly complicated. 
um, because it is not a black and white test almost in any state. Um, factors that typically in California, you had an 11 factor test, which revolved around control. Um, Hey, am I, am I just asking for something, a product or a service out of the contractor? I don't care how they get there. Or am I controlling the means? Am I telling them be here at 8am, use my tools, right? That's more employee-ish. But that test was uh, thrown out for what's called the ABC test. You hear a lot about that. And there's several states, including California, that adopt the ABC test. And so it doesn't matter if you want to call the person a contractor or not, classify them as a contractor or not. The ABC test, you have to meet that. Um, and ultimately, the ABC test says the contractor actually has to be a contractor, actually has to do this. This is their job. And they have their own tax identification, right? Yeah, but more than that. For instance, the concept, that the, the example that the California Supreme Court used was, I think, a law firm and a plumber. Okay? okay, because a law firm, what do they do? They provide legal services. Okay, they don't fix toilets, they don't fix pipes. And so, when a law firm's um, when their pipes break or a toilet breaks in their office, they can call a plumber and they can pay that pl- plumber as an independent contractor. Why? Because that plumber actually is a plumber. They hold themselves out as a plumber. They have a plumbing business. They provide services, plumbing services to other businesses. Um, and importantly, this is the B element in the ABC test. Is, is the law firm provides legal services and they're going to the plumber for um, pipe fixing services, toilet fixing services. That's different. If they were going to the plumber for legal services, you can't have the person be a contractor. They'd have to be an employee under the concept that if you're a company and you, whatever you do, whoever you're getting to do that, they're employees. Yeah. And, and the presumption is everybody is an employee. You have to meet a test to make someone a contractor. So literally, if, if after this, I just said, hey, I got to move. Could you come over to my house and help me carry some furniture for two hours? You're an employee of mine for two hours. Okay. Unless I can satisfy, at least in California, the ABC test. Got you. Okay, let's move on to number three. Unless there's anything we haven't cleared up in that. We got it pretty good. We got it. Just real quick, one-liner. What's the big takeaway from independent versus employee? The big takeaway is it's not up to you. Um, It's up to the law, and you have to actually meet a test. Otherwise, they're an employee. Okay, got you. All right, number three in the first bucket is Form I-9 compliance. Dive into it. Um you got to make sure that someone is authorized to work in the United States before you hire them. I mean, that's a, that's a stop sign. Yeah. Um, and how you go about your I-9 compliance is not just um, loosey-goosey because these things are audited by the government um, heavily, especially now. And so you want to make sure your documentation is tight, and that includes um, the actual process, right? It requires that you get certain information from the soon-to-be employee or the applicant, right? They're... they're the right to work in the United States, a picture or ID of them that satisfies it, and it, and that it's signed by the person um, who's actually checking in your organization, checking these things. If the applicant is, you know, a 65 year old man, and the ID they're giving you is, you know, an 18 year old woman, that ain't gonna fly. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, that's an extreme example. I, you know, it's also not gonna fly if it's an older person. They give an ID that's that's way younger, or vice versa, right? You you have to. Um, you don't have to be Inspector Clouseau, but you got to actually um, look and be a reasonable person when you're actually going through all these information before you hire. So their right to work in the country, uh, an American citizen, uh, social security number, uh, if, or they don't need a social security number necessarily. Um, you need you need to demonstrate a right to work in the United States. That could be a green card. It could be various things. Um, and so that's why it's it's important that you just stick to the I nine as the as the employer. 
Um, don't start asking, are you a citizen? Don't start asking these other questions because that's not relevant. And it could lead to allegations of failure to hire discrimination. Okay. And how do you how do you check to see if the like where does that line get drawn? Because like, they give you this information, but you have to verify. What's that process of verification? It depends on what your organization is doing. Um, some use what's called E-Verify, um, which is a, a online system basically that you run all this information through. Others are just you you fill out the i9 form per the instructions and you, you keep it and um, and and you ensure if, if anything comes up along the way like the worker comes to you and says I want to change my name which happens um, you know you follow a strict process which is too long and detailed it's it's its own podcast yeah. okay got you uh, anything worth unpackaging beyond the form i9 um, don't let people start working before you have this because you'll be in a position that if they can't satisfy the I-9 and you call up an attorney, it's going to be a black and white answer. It's going to be you cannot allow this person to perform work for you until they satisfy it. Okay. Got you. Cool. Uh, number four in the first bucket is hiring background checks in criminal history inquiries. Yeah. So it, you, a lot of organizations make decisions. You know, They're going to offer something that's contingent on a background check. We'll hire you um, so long as um, you're not a killer. Um, so long as you haven't committed all these awful felonies or, you know, it depends though, or so long as you uh, not don't a molester, not a molester, <laughs> right? But uh, also, you know, don't test positive to drugs. What drugs? You know, there's various things that people do. It's called pre-employment inquiries. Um, background checks is one of them. Criminal background checks, drug tests, right? Um, they are highly regulated um, under the uh, under the concept that it can be discriminatory, right? If you're running a criminal background check and you have a policy that says, hey, if you've committed a crime, um, we're not hiring you, um, it can have a disproportionate effect on minorities. So what the law says is in many jurisdictions, you have to do an individualized inquiry. And what that means is, is that you have to look at the job and you look, look at the background check hit. And so if you're you know, hiring someone to be a bank teller and the background check runs and they have a bank robbery on there, then you probably are safe to not hire them. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, but the same thing is you know, cash handling in a restaurant, right? And so if you've got some type of theft, then that, then that is maybe relevant, right? If you're hiring a driver and they've got a background check and they've got criminal DUIs, okay, then that's yeah. a... Okay, but if you're... You know, if so you're for correlation, basically. Correlation is a great word. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but, and it's under the same concept of the I-9. Don't let someone start to work for you before the kind of contingencies on the offer are satisfied. I've had a, a several instances where clients call up and say, I've got this great worker who's been working for me for three days, but now I've got a hit on the, I, the background check just came back and it's got you know something bad on it. But I could probably look past it because now they're working for me. And I say, but if you hire somebody else and they got this hit, you wouldn't hire them. So now you're putting yourself that you may be making discriminatory decisions, even mm-hmm. though you're not. Um, you know, This is a, a young, healthy male. You're deciding to look past the background check hit. And if it's, you know, maybe someone that's not a young, healthy male next time applying, um, it could appear discriminatory if you don't give them the same treatment. Yeah. And I did, I think in my uh, perusing through your list, saw that you can't ask during the job interview about background, like about criminal history, right? You have to, it has to be on the actual uh, job offer. Correct. There's certain jurisdictions that have that, that, that specify where in the process and when you can ask um, because they don't want people to be disqualified by the question. Um, They want people to get the offer um, contingent on the background check and then have someone make 
the individualized uh, inquiry, you know, and, and look already, at the correlation. Yeah. If you already covered that, I apologize. No, not at all. Okay. It's it's a good concept because yeah. it says, hey, if uh, they can't get to the inquiry if if they've already you know checked a box saying I've committed the felony. Okay, cool. So are we safe to move on to the fifth? I don't want to rush you too not much. We've got all. a lot to get to. Your show. No. When can we talk about the logo here on the mic? <laughs> I want to uh, talk about that. Well, what, what specifically? Uh, the pineapple. So what, what does a pineapple mean? Uh, yeah, tell me that. So a pineapple is the international <laughs> symbol for we're, and if you're we're, the re, we're looking, we have these mic flags on the microphone. If you're watching the video of this, that's kind of help give it away. But the microphone is the international symbol for hospitality. And fun fact, it's almost upside down. It's not quite upside down. It's sideways. Uh, but the upside down pineapple, my brother informed me, is the international symbol for being a swinger. Oh. Uh, yeah, which is kind of funny. So it's sideways, <laughs> which means I think, I think that means that I'm just open to all you're open-minded. Yeah. Whatever yeah. floats your boat. In an, uns- by me. in an unstoppable way. It's tilt slightly down, which is a little concerning, but I don't know. Let's not read into too much of that. I think it says you're, it's, you're on your way to swinging. <laughs> you're on your way. Oh, no. All right. So uh, number five, employee, <laughs> speaking about, uh, what is this like? No, this isn't the right one. Uh, employee a- attribution in class arbitration. Yeah, ar- sorry, thank you. Arbitration in uh, class action waiver agreements. Yeah, this is actually this is a good one to talk about after we just uh, <laughs> made all these sexual innuendos. Um, yeah. No, what th- what this is is y- you hear a lot about this now. Um, it's forced arbitration uh, when a if you have a dispute between an employer and employee. So typically, if you have a dispute. Um, you can go to a government agency. You can also go to an attorney or on your own and file in state or federal court. And so if you've signed one of these arbitration and class action waiver agreements, though, as an employee, you are agreeing at the beginning of employment, you're agreeing to forego that right to go to court and instead go to private arbitration. And arbitration is basically a private judge. Um, It happens behind the scenes. The employer would pay for it. Most states have laws that say your arbitration agreement um, has to give the employee the same rights that they would have in court. You can't necessarily take away their rights, but you're changing the the forum. You're changing the venue. Why does the forum, the venue, matter? Um, to who? Uh, why does it matter? It matters that both parties for different reasons. Well, but why it, is it worth going through this process of getting our employees to sign an employee arbitration and class action waiver agreement? So it's for an operator. Um, jury tri- juries are unpredictable. Um, there's 12 people you don't know what they're going to do versus the decision maker being an arbitrator who's typically a retired judge or um, who knows uh, the law who knows the law or, or, or an attorney a former attorney who serves as an arbitrator right and so there's that there's um, the concept that if if an employer is found to have done something wrong then it moves to damages and that an arbitrator is going to be more reasonable and not award a bazillion dollars versus a jury who um, you know may look at a plaintiff who doesn't have their job and feel bad and um, take it out on the operator. Okay. Um, the other thing, arbitration is confidential. Okay. So a lot of times, and that's why it's controversial too. Um, in the Me Too era, there a lot of times you have um, companies that have, have asked their employees to sign arbitration agreements, not asked, told, and they've then backed off because the employees have said, don't silence us. If I want to um, bring a claim of harassment, I shouldn't have to bring it in the dark. I should um, be able to be public about it. And so the harassment can stop. And there are a lot of state laws that that, that aim to do that and, and carve that out. Um, the the U.S. Supreme Court did confirm an employer's right recently to be able to have mandatory arbitration agreements. But you know, I save the best for last. I think the most important reason you have a uh, arbitration is, uh, arbitration agreement is the second part of it. It's the class action waiver. Um, 
wage and hour, which is basically pay claims, how you pay someone. Those are claims that are brought as class actions oftentimes. So you didn't pay an employee properly um, for a meal break or you, you know, miss some, some pay for a, a, a catering shift. You know, it's 20 bucks you missed, but that employee sues as a class action. And so it's every catering shift that was ever missed and penalties, et cetera, et cetera. And that you know, $20 liability becomes a half a million dollar liability um, that's uninsured. So y- y- you want to have an agreement from the outset. Um, typically, when the employee is most friendly to you, um, they're not probably going to give up that right on the way out the door. Um, and so it, the arbitration agreement sure is your avenue where you can get the employee to agree to waive the class action um, rights. And so it says, as an employee, I will bring this as a, <coughs> excuse me, as an employee, I'll bring this as a single plaintiff in arbitration. I won't bring this as a class action. Do you see this as being like a deal breaker? If somebody, if you put this document in front of somebody and they say, I'm not going to sign it, should you say, well, it's mandatory? Yeah, I think, well, I think as an, as an operator, you have to decide what your approach is. And yes, it's, it is mandatory. Typically, you, if you can do that, and right now you can legally, um, you make it mandatory. And oftentimes, because of that, you don't really get the option as an employee. If it's mandatory, it's mandatory. Um, if is it a is it a red flag if someone doesn't yeah. want to sign it? Um, I would think so. Like, yeah, it's a red flag. It's you a character thing, like, hey, like, you know, I don't. But I the don't. employee could argue that me making you sign this is a character flaw. I think I agree with you. I think it goes both ways. Um, you know, as a part, as an employee, I don't. I wouldn't judge an individual who says, "Listen, I don't know how the employment relationship is going to go. I don't know if I just want right now, without knowing that, to waive my right to have a dispute go to a jury." I can understand a reasonable person um, making that decision, but at the same time, most people you hire are kind of happy to be there, and they just sign what's put in front of them. Um, particularly the documents that are kind of non-negotiable, like this. Um, so, as as a human being, I wouldn't judge, but but. Yeah, I can understand as an operator when you have you know you put this to you know fifty new hires and one of them doesn't sign. The big thing for me that's standing out in this this section we're talking about is the idea that your reputation it's it's, it's confidential. I think that because in the restaurant industry your reputation means so much within the community, like you want that extra sense of insurance. Yeah, you do, but you know it doesn't stop an employee from just making statements. Yeah. I mean, if they're going to go to the press, they're going to go to the press. If they're going to you know uh, I it 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 stops a a jury trial, a public jury trial, but off, you know, 1% of cases get that far. 99% settle. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, at the end of the day, just be good to your people. I mean, I'm not saying like, this is a good way to protect yourself from being an asshole. Like I, I would never encourage that, but, uh, I think we can move on to the this next. Is, this is asshole coverage. Like don't be yeah. an asshole, but in the case, <laughs> yeah. in the sense, someone thinks you're an asshole. At least you got this. We all have our days. Agreement. Everyone we, we does. Make, we, we make poor decisions. That's you right. know, we regret things. Um, always try to be your best, do your best, but, on your weakest days, you need that you need that security blanket, that little extra cushion there. Um, okay, so we're gonna go into the next bucket, which is wage and hour. But we're gonna take a, a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box. Bento Box empowers restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships directly through their websites. And that last bit, their relationships is especially important right now as we're being forced to be away from our guests. There's not much a restaurant can own during these difficult times, but they can own their online presence and Bento Boss can help. Restaurants are currently having to make significant changes to their operations and Bento Box is setting up gift card processing in online ordering stores in as little as four days to support restaurants during this challenging time. 
Look, you have a lot to manage right now. And with Bento Box, you get full service support, integration, and analytics anytime you need it. One less thing to worry about. With Bento Box, you can drive revenue and keep your guests up to date. Restaurant Unstoppable listeners get 50% off setup fees at getbento.com slash unstoppable. We're back in the first uh, bucket uh, in or the first section in the wage and hour bucket is the non-exempt versus exempt employee classification. So what's going on there? What's going on there is is that just like an independent contractor employee, um, once they're an employee of yours, you've got to decide, are we going to pay them hourly or salary? Um, That decision is not up to you. That's up to the law. And so whether you classify somebody as um, non-exempt, um, meaning they're not exempt from the requirement of hourly and overtime. They're non-exempt from that. So you pay them hourly or exempt, meaning that you can pay them a salary. They have to meet the requirements to be exempt. And so the concept is is that everybody in the country is is non-exempt. They're all required to hourly. They're all required to overtime. Me, you, anyone that's an employee. Um, you only get to be paid salary instead if you meet an exemption. So the, this concept for an operator, um, a lot of times they'll think, oh, they're a manager. That's fine. Well, there's usually two things for that exemption. One is how much you're paid. The this minimum. might sound silly. What exactly does exempt mean? Like, What's the definition it, of exemption? It, exempt means that you are exempt from the legal requirement of being paid hourly and overtime. So exempt itself means not held to the standard or you're, you're excused? Ex- right. Because every, every employer has to pay everybody hourly and overtime. I, and maybe that seemed like way too dumbed down. But no, it doesn't. It's, it's a, you hear the concept all the time and I, I tried to explain it, but I didn't. I wasn't direct enough and I didn't know my audience <laughs> um, that it, it is that is the concept that ev- everybody is hourly. Um, you're not exempt from that requirement. Everyone is hourly. You're only exempt from it and thus can be paid salary if you meet the requirements to be exempt. So when you hire someone, they're hourly, right? That's it. And then you have to ask your HR manager, okay, if we're going to pay this person's salary, what exemption do they meet? Do they meet the manager exemption, which says you can pay someone's salary um, if they're paid a certain amount of salary every pay period and their job duties um, generally are management at least half the time. Um, where that comes into problem, you have an assistant manager, right? You, you it, In title, okay. Yeah. Um, and let's say you pay that assistant manager, you know, $56,000, which is just a, you know, a hair above what's required in California right now. So you think to yourself, fine, no problem. I don't have to pay him overtime. Um, but let's say the assistant manager, you know, half the time is jumping on the line. Yeah. Um, they're not really doing the job duties of a manager half the time, and thus they can't be exempt. Thus, you owe them overtime. Thus, there's wage and hour violations. So even though you pay this person $56,000 a year for, you know, the 50 hours, 55 hours a week, that extra hours over 40, those 15 hours over 40 on a 55-hour week, you owe them overtime. Okay. So there's a base, which is the salary. Um, and if they work beyond 40 hours, you you owe them whatever they're... You have to come to a, uh, what your hourly rate would be in half. Essentially, yes. Is, is Overtime is the concept that whatever your hourly rate is, whatever you're paid, um, you have to be paid... one and a half times that for hours over 40. Some states have daily overtime, like hours over eight. And so you have to look again, federal law, anything over 40 in a week, but then you have some state laws that say over eight in a day. So you have to look and ask yourself which hours an overtime hour and not your payroll provider is going to do the math for you. Okay. So is is it safe to say to protect yourself from this, just make your, your assistant managers 
be on the clock at all times. Well, even though there might be salary, like still when you're there, clock in so we can track your hours. Not necessarily, because then you're creating uh, uh, evidence of uh, if you did misclassify them. Um, but you also uh, want to pay them the right way too. So well, then that so yes, you want the way you pay them the right way though is when you hire them, make the determination then using the right test. Can this person be hourly or salary? Okay, and is it is it too much detail to get into uh i don't want to get, dive into a a deep rabbit hole here but how exactly do we know when somebody becomes exempt is it the job description is it it's the job duties and the and the way you pay them so typically ma- like management is an example of ex- so if your management are what like what are the key words or the key things it's the key things you have to actually do um management duties at least half the time you're working so um, you're supervising someone versus actually being on the line and doing it yourself. Um, you're making decisions and using um, independent discretion and judgment. You know, you're not just following orders, but you're actually looking and saying, okay, I'm going to make a decision on when we're low on XYZ product, I'm going to make an order. Hey, maybe I can actually make the decision on which vendor to order from. Um, you're doing those type of decisions versus, you know, do you want fries with that or can I take your order, which is hourly employee um, stuff. And because no job is, is clear cut, it's not 100% um, exempt or non-exempt manager or non-manager. You have to look at the duties themselves, not the title. Got you. And uh, something I want to be better about going forward in this interview, is this specific to California or is this more of a greater picture? No, this is a greater picture. But um, so federal law requires this to the ex- whether someone's exempt or non-exempt. Um, each state has its own um, standard as well you have to meet some states track federal law other states are more employee friendly like california so the overarching concept is general but the details of what a manager is for example might be different state by state yes got you um okay number seven uh just passed it local minimum wage and paid sick leave regulations get into it well you have to comply with every um law that's uh that's in that applies to you from a jurisdictional standpoint right so you know you're in the united states you got a restaurant you know you're in the united states you know what state you're in you're also in a county in a city um and recently counties and cities have started passing laws that affect the employment relationship um laws that say hey even though the state minimum wage is uh 13 an hour we're going to make it 14 an yeah, hour maybe you live in a bougie-ass city yeah that's right that's right expensive. that's yeah. exactly right and, and paid sick leave is another one um they'll say listen you know the state of california says you only get three days but if you live in los angeles we're going to give you six okay um and it's because a lot of times um state um bodies you know city councils um county commissioners they they want to protect workers in those areas so yeah, now and when the coronavirus comes to town it's usually la first there you go and that's why we have extra <laughs> sick days to stay home yeah. um but as an operator, this is makes it much more complicated because you thought, okay, California, I've got my California procedures, got my California handbook, got my California paid sick leave policy, um, got my California payroll practices. I know what I'm doing. And then you got someone like me come in and say, well, what cities are your restaurants in? And you say, well, Santa Monica, Los Angeles, San Francisco. I say, well, they have different laws in each of those cities. So I've got to have different policies for the employees in each of those cities. You know, and so it's, it becomes difficult for multi-city operators. So the overarching lesson here is be mindful of the, the city-by-city, county-by-county regulations specific to local minimum wage and paid sick leave regulations. That's right. The, 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 the takeaway is, is that comply with federal law, comply with state law, and find out if there's any local law. Okay, got you. Uh, number eight, unless I'm cutting you short. Not at all. Number eight, equal pay, pull it back. Equal pay is uh, the concept in the law that 
everybody, uh, male and female, deserves equal pay for the same job. And so if you hire a server, um, you're not going to pay the female $14 an hour and the male $15 an hour. Um, and you know, I, I have yet to come across a client that actually openly does that or tries to do that. Um, oftentimes, it's, it's underneath the surface. You don't realize it's going on. Um, it's, it, it's perpetuated um, historically. And so you've seen lots of states pass laws prohibiting um, employers from asking applicants about their prior salary. Um, because the concept is, is look, and, and, and I think it makes sense in a labor market. If I say to you, how much were you getting paid? You know, you're going to say I was getting paid 15 an hour. And I think to myself, okay, I can get them for 15, 50 an hour. Yeah. Right. And so if you have a female employee who's been underpaid and they say, I've been getting paid 13 an hour and I think I can get her for 13, 50 an hour. And then you do that. Well, now you've just perpetuated the underpayment. Yeah, so um, you're basically just trying to break the the routine, the the pattern, break the cycle. Yeah. Is is but the law, the way the law attacks that um, and says is that you cannot ask applicants um, what they were being paid. It's not a national law, but it's in bigger bigger states: New York, Los Angeles, um, I've California. I've definitely feel that. I just spit across the table. Sorry if I got <laughs> you. You got excited that. there. <laughs> I've definitely seen that on on applications in New Hampshire for it, sure. Yes, um, there are there are many states that still allow it, but when when you have equal pay laws, they often come with. Um, this along with it, which is you can't ask what they were making before, but it's not, there are some states that ask and look, it's a, it's a relatively new law. There are, I'm sure employers in California that still have it on their application. They don't realize. Okay, cool. Um, I think we got that one covered, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, number nine timekeeping for non-exempt employees. Okay. So that, what that means is, is timekeeping for hourly employees. Yes. And so you hear a lot of times, do I need to actually have them keep time or can I just assume they're working 40 hours a week? Um, no, you have to have them keep time. And you know, certain states like California have regulations that say that, um, that they need time records, but also to, to be able to prove when they worked, when they didn't work. Um, you hear the concept of off-the-clock work. That means that they were work, a worker was working without getting paid for it. They were off the clock. They weren't clocked in. That means they have unpaid wages. That means there's penalties for it. And so what are your timekeeping practices is, is often your biggest risk as an operator. I know it sounds crazy, but there's not insurance for it. Um, wrongful termination, you can get insurance. If your timekeeping is wrong or you pay someone wrong, there's no insurance because um, otherwise companies would just go out of business, not pay their workers and look to their insurance carriers to insure payroll. And so those are carved out of a lot of insurance policies. And so you'll have a situation where you don't realize it and you'll have people clock out and then they'll close and they'll go home. And, you know, you have several employees do that for a number of years. And next thing you know, you've got, you know, 20 minutes each day and, you know, for hundreds of days. And that's a big class action. Why would, why would that happen? Like, why would an employer think that they're able to do that? Well, because you, you think it's like a little bit, a few minutes here and there, right? It's not a big deal. They, what, what else are you going to do, right? You, you're not going to clock out outside the store. Like, okay, so they clock out. That's the last thing they do. But then on the way out, they grab the cash. Right, they check all the the locks. They turn off the lights. Okay, it's it's a minute and a half. It's two minutes. Yeah, I think the the, the in my experience, the idea is, hey, like I need you. Like it's usually like a, a system issue where like I need you to clock out of the system before I can cash you out or something like that. That too. Yeah. So like in the system, like we need to end this period so I can take your cash, like whatever. And, but then there's like, oh, like don't things forget, happen after. Don't forget to dump the mop bucket. Uh, exactly. You know, like there's like little things, but these things compound. Absolutely. So how do we protect ourselves from this? Well, you, you one is you don't be cheap. Um, you have good procedures in place, but if you know this is going to happen, right? Don't don't ignore it and, and think it's going to be only a few minutes. Um, address it. Maybe add five minutes to everyone's pay stub. 
right? Add add in five minutes because you recognize there's going to be the person, like the closer. Mm -hmm. The closer gets an extra 15 minutes every single week on their pay because we recognize that that's, you know, they close three times a week. There's about five minutes of work, you know, after you clock out that happens, right? Emptying the mop bucket, et cetera. And so you're accounting for that. Turn um, the lights off, locking the door. It's it, all work. It, it's all work. Um, and also, it's not just the open close, but it's when you're off the clock, right? And if, if all of a sudden I call you um, when you're at Disneyland and I say, hey, can you come in tomorrow? And we have a 20-minute conversation about like prepping for tomorrow and all that because you're a cook and this and that and the other. Those 20 minutes are work. Yeah. So at the end of that call, you better, as, as the person, the manager called, you better tell that worker, hey, I know you're at Disneyland, but for these last 20 minutes when you get in, fill out a time adjustment form and add those 20 minutes so we can pay yeah, you for or, it. Or tell the manager to like you know clock you in 20 minutes earlier or something like that well no not a, but or can it, you adjust the you could probably go through the system and adjust on the back end like the next like day before like extend 20 minutes or something that's like that. right and yeah. so the you want to get the time that they work from the employee themselves because you want you don't want it to be a dispute later that the manager was shaving time but okay. you don't want to lose the time and gotcha. so i your concept of let's just get it in there you know one way or another whether it's time adjustment form the manager with the employee doing it later whatever it is but yeah don't ignore it okay cool anything that we haven't brought to the surface regarding timekeeping and non-exempt employees i feel like this is a big one it's a huge one um yeah. I think you know companies have to look and actually try to find the off the clock work. It's not going to just appear to you, right? If you're, you know, in the corporate office, you don't understand necessarily how one of your locations is closing. Um, you know, that you you have security checks a lot of times. Um, that that's off the clock work when someone's going in and out. You also have to how how are you doing your meal and rest periods? Like if if people like in California that half an hour of an unpaid lunch, are they clocking in and out? What's going on with those? Are you looking at those time records? Do the time records actually show the clock in and clock out? Um, you know, and and you know, you see one maybe you have one store, and for some reason they're able to do all their work without incurring overtime. But the store down the street's incurring overtime. Like, go look at the store. Maybe the manager's doing something they shouldn't be doing. Okay, so I think the big takeaway um, as far as how we can protect ourselves from this is obviously just document everything, but to simplify it add a little bit of a cushion like you said that five minute cushion and let let your employees know that like i'm giving you a five minute cushion um and that most of the time you're out of here before that five minute cushion and it like the the law of averages right create an environment where you're trying to capture the time right as opposed to a hard environment that says i don't care what you're doing before 8 a.m we're not paying you for it so really i think the big takeaway is implement a labor management tool. (laughs) Absolutely. Like that's the easiest way. There's so many out there right now, whether it's uh, hot schedules, we work, uh, the ones that are, I I will say, I will say about all these tools, you have to be con, you have to be conscious that, you know, if you're going to ask an employee and we'll get to it, okay, use hot schedules. Then you're, are you creating a reimbursement obligation on yourself? Because you're saying to the employee, you need to have a cell phone. Mm -hmm. Um, are, are right and so what you do is you maybe use it as a supplement and say you don't need to have it like your schedule is always posted you're never going to be held accountable for not checking the hot schedule but by the way we have this as an option for you you're not requiring yeah. them you can check it online you can also check and we printed out the schedule yeah. here it is so you have to have something for everybody yeah and and the bre- breaks in timekeeping are the same thing in the sense that you want to it's not you can't get them to necessarily wave it along the way it's about demonstrating you know that you got this information it's about evidence and the strength of the evidence and so you want to have them acknowledge along the way. You want to have, you know, when you say have a policy that says, you know, if you're working off the clock, we want you to add in time, have a time adjustment form. Okay. Actually have people that utilize the form as opposed to the form never being used in 10 years. Got you. So um, we're on to the next um, bucket, which I believe is number 10. Or I don't, actually, on my piece of paper, I don't have the buckets. Well, I'll tell <laughs> so you. Have so, we gone to this, the third bucket yet? No, we haven't. We're okay. still on wage an hour because it could probably, again, be its own podcast. Okay. But I will, uh, <laughs> you know, the wage hour bucket's a, lo- a long bucket, so we'll keep going. Um, okay. 
So the next uh, item in the wage in hour is uh, travel time, correct? That's right. All right, cool. Hit it. So um, travel time is a concept that even, just like we were talking about, even when you're um, during the day, if I'm driving from one location to the other, that's work. That's travel time. You have to be paid for it. If you're an hourly employee, that's got to be, um, you've got to be paid for that. And so um, we talked about it a lot in, in the last topic, but that could be an area of off-the-clock work that you need to be conscious of. Um, as an operator, if, if you're actually having employees incur travel time, most of the time it's probably if they're going location to location or they're actually doing delivery functions. If, if, you're, if you don't have in-house or, you know, employees doing delivery um, there are probably occasions though where your product is being delivered. So you ask yourself, how is that happening? Is is the general manager using their own car, you know, to you know drop stuff off on the way home? Is the general manager dropping off cash on the way to somewhere? Right, that's travel time. Mm-hmm. Like even if even if that cash is on the way um, home, right, the bank is on the way home for that manager, and that manager typically wouldn't be paid for that time because that's commute time on their way home. But if you're asking them to go do something, then it could be work time. So. Uh, the takeaway here is is that when you're trying to look for areas where employees are working hourly that you're not paying them for, traveling even infrequently could be one of them. Okay. So the rule of thumb is if they have to travel beyond their normal routine, um, say they have a five-minute commute to work every day, uh, but today um, there's an off-site catering event that's actually 10 minutes or another five minutes further from where they have to go, you have to pay them for the five minutes additional that they travel in california yes that's the rule and it's state by state but ge- the general rule is is what you said which is hey if you're asking them to do it for work um and it's beyond their normal commute um and a normal commute is kind of set just because i have someone that works you know in four hours away doesn't make that all normal you can just have that um but yes your example is exactly right that it's you've got to pay them for that time it's work Okay. Um, any other examples that might be other states, or are you not really familiar enough to, to touch on that? Well, others, a lot of states don't have the law at all, and then you'll have federal law, and, and federal law is a little quirky, but the concept's the same. Whereas gotcha. if you're controlling an employee, um, you know they don't have a choice. They, they, they don't get to go stop at their friend's house with the cash from the day. You tell the employee, go to the bank with this. That, that's controlling them. You need to pay them. All right. And this, this next one is a big one, too. Meals and uh, rest breaks comes up a lot and there's always tension around this i feel like yeah because the tension is is that um the law says you don't in california um and these are state by state issues typically there are federal law but i'll get to in a sec but in california where you hear about the most the law says you don't have to police it you don't have to um, but you have to give the opportunity for employees to take meal and rest breaks um however if you don't police it this is my advice if you don't police it you're going to have a hard time proving that you actually satisfied the law and provided the opportunity. And and so the concept is if you just have a policy and you put it in, you know, you give it out to employees, they all sign it in the handbook and it says, you know, take your meal breaks, take your rest breaks. And you put the policy in the drawer and you ignore it and no one ever does it and you schedule the way you schedule and some people do get their breaks, some people don't. Um, and then you get sued for it and you say, oh, I didn't have to police it. I provided it to him. Look, I put the policy. But then the employee's going to say, no, you didn't. You scheduled me, you this, you that. Um, I asked for a break and you said no. And even if you didn't, yeah. like, you know, the, it, it's, it becomes a matter of proof and then it becomes a, a cost defense issue because if the employee wins, at least in California, the employee wins their case, we, the employer has to pay the attorney's fees. If the employer wins, the employee does not have to pay our attorney's fees. So it's called one-way attorney's fees. And so oftentimes if it's, you know, it's a 50-50 shot, right? I'm talking to a client of mine. I'm saying, yeah, I know we gave them the opportunity to take breaks and I know they just skipped them all the time, but we don't have any documentation. So if we win, 
then we win and you just have to pay me. Um, so is it the policy, like, if you take a break, you have to clock in and clock out? Is that why they make that mandatory so you I, can track it? Yes, I think for meal breaks, yes, um, because you need to be able to track actually when they did. Because that for a break is not a break. It's the timing. When did you get to take the break? Did you get to take it on time or did you know you, was it taken late and thus a violation? Um, how long is the break? It's 30 minutes, right? Did you give them only a 25-minute break? Um, did, did you give them 30 minutes, but at the beginning and end, they had to take on gear, put, take off gear and they were being controlled by the employer. And thus it was short. Um, also it's gotta be uninterrupted. So you don't get to have 15 minutes and then they ask you, Hey, can you go jump in on the line for two minutes and then give them another 15 minutes that's interrupted? Um, obviously, you know, skipped entirely. And so there's four different ways, four ways that a meal break can go, um, into violation zone. And, the, the law says you only have to provide in California the opportunity, but it's very difficult to prove that in a restaurant environment. Usually, it's because you're so busy and someone is interrupted and says, can you jump on the line or can you cover table six? Um, and then you have a time record that you know either shows that and it's a 26-minute you know, break and so thus you should be paying the premium pay for it. Um, or you have no documentation or you should, you know, to, to show why that happened um, and you have a violation. So... And rest periods, you don't necessarily clock in and clock out because you're paid. Um, and so it becomes even harder to document. So that goes back to the environment of... So it has to be a unique log within the system that shows it's a break, not clocking out. Correct. Exactly. And so how you do that also, you want to remind employees that are getting it. So I, I advise that when they're logging in and logging out or clocking and clocking out, there's a message that comes up and says, you understand, employee, that you have an opportunity to take a rest break and that if you skipped it, you're going to click here and said, I skipped it. And so later when they sue and claim they skipped it i have evidence yeah in defending the company and said but look every single day you clocked out you you were given the opportunity to tell us if you didn't get the break and you never told us that yeah you know do you know if like companies like organizations like harry's for example which is recommended a lot which is a uh, hr company do they have these things built in to their systems? some do and some don't um because it's a state-by-state issue um and because it's really a hot spot i mean it's probably one of the hottest hot spots yeah. on this um it's hard for them to do that, and they don't want to venture too far into it. They're getting better, though. It's more to the timekeeping and less the payroll. It's the timekeeping system. You want to be able to say, how are you handling meal breaks? How are you handling rest breaks? Got you. Cool. All right, on to number 12. You're doing great, by the way. I'm loving this stuff. And let me know when we get to the next bucket, because I don't see it on my list. Uh, if, if I pass uh, that, I, I don't see it on my list either. Hold on. Whatever. We're going to cover 20 overall compliance issues. Uh, this is. I hope you guys are finding this super valuable. I mean, I'm, my eyes are being opened up to new things right now, and I hope this isn't my area of expertise. And I, I'm, I'm totally willing to look like an idiot on behalf of all of you, so hopefully I'm asking the right questions. So on to number 12, pay stub and payroll practices. All right. So we just talked Triple about timekeeping, right? And so the, the how you're recording time. Um, but then, great, we got these beautiful time records. We know they're compliant. Now, how do we make sure that you get compliant payroll records? You know, calculate the overtime properly. Display it on the pay stub properly. Um, you know, prove that you're actually getting the wages that you owe to the employee to the employee. Um, and so it, it is a state-by-state issue. Um, I mean, if federal law has the concept that you need to provide certain information, but most states enhance that. California, obviously, in particular. Um, and there is a statute in California um, that trips up many operators, and it's it's called Labor Code 226, but it is a, it's the pay stub or the wage statement statute, which is all about how the wage statement looks, what is displayed on the wage statement. It has nothing to do with whether the employee was paid correctly or incorrectly. It's the concept that as an employee right? You work 
and all of a sudden you're paid, you got to figure out is the pay correct. You got to be at least be given a requisite amount of information so you can decide did my employee, you know, did my employer fuck me out of pay? Mm. And so when it it seems easy, you get a pay stub, you know, you work 40 hours, okay, I work 10 bucks an hour, okay, here's $400, great, simple. But then you get to, well, they deducted for my tips. Um, they paid me my cash tips through payroll, and then it's they took away $3 for um, my medical coverage. And, and all of a sudden, the pay stub is confusing as all hell. Mm. And, you know, you can't figure out, wait a second, like, did I, how much, what was my overtime rate? Like, I don't even know what they paid me for overtime. So you, basically, you got to itemize. The, the- yes, but what you really have to do is, is you have to get with an attorney and they have to look at your pay stub because there's nine things. Damn. It's very complicated. One of the things are it shows the rates of pay and the hours of that rate. Um, and so you have that becomes very complicated because sometimes you'll have employers that, you know, clump payments together and the pay stub does have to be itemized. Um, but... It's, I hear far too often when I'm, I'm, I get a claim in and the operator says, well, I know we paid them right. I mean, even though they work $10 an hour in the back of the house and then on, on Tuesday they worked as servers $15 an hour, we knew how to do the overtime. We did the weighted average correctly. We, do, we don't underpay our employees. We're good people. And I listen and I say, I understand that. No one's accusing you of underpaying employees. They're accusing you of giving a pay stub that was confusing. Yeah. So what's the best way to protect ourselves from this? Is, 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 do you, would you recommend, is there like... Um I think this is why it's important to outsource these sort of things. Well, it's important to outsource the to an expert so you get a payroll provider, yes, but you have to read that vendor contract and the payroll providers will not indemnify you for this. So you have to, even though the payroll provider will say, here's a pay stub and you'll tell them this is a California employee, you cannot assume as the operator, you cannot assume that that pay stub complies. Okay. Um, what you have to do is you have to have your HR person dig a little deeper and say, Okay, give me 10 pay stubs in 10 different scenarios so I can look at each to make sure that they comply. Give me a pay stub where there's a meal period paid. Give me a pay stub where there's overtime shown. Give me a pay stub where there's double time. Give me a pay stub where there's um, maybe if it's commission, if they're a caterer, right? Give me a pay stub um, where there's a split shift. Um, give me a pay stub of an employee's direct deposit. Give yeah. me employee. Yeah, I can, the list really goes on. And so, but it's not an area to be ignored. Yeah. Okay. Are we safe to move on from this one? Sure. All right, number 13, commission agreements and bonus plans. So, you know, when you're, you have an employee, right, you have to decide are they hourly or salary, and then, you know, how they're paid. Um, just because you have an hourly employee, that, that's the minimum that you have to pay them. That means that for every hour work, you have to pay a minimum wage, and when they work overtime hours, you've got to pay them times and a half. Um, it doesn't prohibit you from paying them commissions or bonuses or anything else, Um any other payment outside of the hourly rate. The takeaway here is is that when hourly employees are receiving their pay, overtime is not times and a half their hourly pay. It's times and a half what they're paid, their total comp. And so if I pay you 10 bucks an hour, but I also give you a $100 bonus during the same pay period, okay? And you work overtime. Your overtime rate is not $15 an hour. Your overtime rate, you've got to factor in the hundred dollars. Okay, and so it's you know it's sixteen dollars. So you maybe take, an hour. Yeah. Okay. So you would take whatever the average is. Uh, there's a there's a complicated formula. 1.5. Yes, there's a complicated formula that there's a California specific one. There's a federal one. But the concept is is that when you pay an hourly employee outside their hourly rate, like a bonus, you've got to take that bonus into account okay. when figuring out their overtime. What about profit sharing? Every yeah, profit sharing is a narrow exception, but. It's got to be true profit sharing. And typically, they just call it profit sharing, and it's really a bonus. Okay. And so it doesn't matter. And there's an exclusion for discretionary bonuses, but 
it, the name itself doesn't control. Okay. If you incentivize the employee, if you typically give it out, it's non-discretionary. Um, things that can be kept outside of this calculation are expense reimbursements. Okay. And so if I'm going to say, here's you know, 55 cents a mile or whatever it is for driving, that doesn't need to go into gotcha. the calculation. So what's the major difference between bonuses and profit sharing? Like the, 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 the lot, How you know you're on one side of that or the other? Typically, you've got to have a very formal profit sharing plan that meets certain tax requirements. Um, the standard to meet is different. Um, if you're looking at California standard, I believe in the, the California Labor Commission actually sets forth requirements. It's a requirements. very specific question. It so. is. Um, and I, I would tell you that I, I, I have not had an, a restaurant client yet who's given their hourly employees any profit sharing. I think the cue here is if you do a profit sharing, have a lawyer look at it to oh, make yeah. sure that it's exempt. Absolutely. Got you. Cool. Moving on to number 14, if at any point, if we want to abandon the buckets, just just let me know. No, I'll tell you. That's the reason. You're like, where's the next bucket? <laughs> yeah. The next bucket comes after. Um, it really, the, every, the last three buckets are their own little 18, 19, and 20 because okay. so much of this is wage hour because that's gotcha, where gotcha, operators' gotcha, risk gotcha. is. All right, cool. I don't know why I'm so hung up on the buckets. Because you like five. Five's good. Yeah. So we're at number 13. We just did commission agreement and bonus plans. Number 14, expense reimbursements. Get into it. Um, so the concept is, is that if you... Uh, if you're an employer and you ask an employee to do something and they need to use a tool or do something, um, incur an expense in order to fulfill their job, then that's an expense that you have to reimburse. Um, it's There's no federal law that requires that. It's state by state. There are some federal laws about it um, in in the sense that if you are having employees incur expenses and it brings them below the minimum wage, that becomes a problem. Um, but generally speaking, it's a state by state issue. California has a statute that says, employees have to be reimbursed. But that's been extended multiple ways. So for instance, um, if you're driving, well, how much do I reimburse someone? Do I just pay for their gas? Well, what about their insurance? And what about the wear and tear on the car? And so the IRS has come out with a mileage rate. And so it says, look, you can use this rate to reimburse. But there's many different things that an employee could be using besides their car, their cell phone. So if I have my own personal cell phone, everyone's got their own cell phone these days. So they come in and they're a server. And as an employer, you're not issuing cell phones to servers. Um, and you're not telling servers you need to have a phone. But if I'm communicating with my servers via their phone, if I'm texting with them, then, and if they don't respond to the text, I'm saying, why haven't you responded? And that's a requirement. I've required the server basically to have a cell phone because that's how I'm communicating with them. So then I've required that and it's expensive. So now they have to reimburse for the cell phone. Yeah, And that doesn't mean you have to pay their whole cell phone bill, but there's court cases that say you have to look and see how much of this of the device is work-related and you've got to reimburse that what amount. What about just communicating outside of work hours? That can be off-the-clock issues. Yeah, because I mean, I think, I think that's one thing today. Like if you're texting somebody who's off the clock and they're having to like, and you're expecting them to reply to you right away. I mean, maybe that's outside of this. this realm no, it's not. It's, it's combining the, the timekeeping and this in one. And the, yeah. the, the, the concept is, is that if you're going to either prohibit that as a, as a company and actually follow that, or if you know that's going to happen, set up safeguards. So you're not, um, you know, without a defense, if you get sued on it. And so the safeguards can be, look, if you know, your managers are going to call up, um, post a schedule, but have them call up also. And if that happens, have them fill out a time adjustment form. Um, also, if they call up, reimburse them. And, you know, for add five dollars of a reimbursement, so you can argue. Look, for this week when we called you on your cell phone, like it was about five dollars worth, and so that here it is. Yeah. Um, and people are very afraid about the reimbursements. I honestly think that if if it's legitimate, it, it's actually a good thing because you can pay employees an expense reimbursement 
It's it's an amount that doesn't have to be factored into overtime. It doesn't get taxed as wages. Um, now, theoretically, it evens out the employee because they're incurring the expense. But you know, if you got an employee and you're think and they're bent out of shape about stuff, and it's like you know what they're using their cell phone anyway, and it's happening. So why don't I just you know reimburse ten dollars a month from here on? Yeah, are there any other examples that come to mind as as where this expense re- reimbursement comes in? It's yes, not so obvious. and let's go to number fifteen because I created that, and that's uniforms and tools. Oh, I was just going to ask about uniforms and tools. Okay, uh, but I was holding off. No, okay. perfect. So item number fifteen, I'll do the intro to this one. Yeah. Is, is uniforms and tools. Um, and it, the concept is is that. It, if you certain states have regulations that say if you're requiring someone to wear something specific enough, that's a uniform. And if it's a uniform, you have to reimburse for it. So, for instance, California says you can ask a, a worker to or employee to wear uh, a white shirt and dark pants and dark non-slip shoes. That's generic enough that you don't have to reimburse for that. But if I tell you to wear a Hawaiian shirt. You got to wear a Hawaiian shirt. I don't tell you, I don't say it has to be a logo shirt. It doesn't have to say the logo of the restaurant, just any Hawaiian shirt. But I'm requiring, that's now a uniform I'm requiring not to reimburse for that. Okay. And if I say it's got to be a pressed Hawaiian shirt, then I've got to arguably reimburse for the dry cleaning bill because yeah. I'm telling the employee they've got to incur the expense of pressing the shirt. What if they're a bougie, a bougie AF employee that goes out to like the top shelf, you know, clothing store to get like the the nicest Hawaiian shirt that exists? That's no, because it's a $150 Hawaiian shirt. Well, if if you as the employer had said come with a really nice Hawaiian shirt, then yeah, the employee's got an argument that that's what it is. But if okay. But if not that, and it's just any Hawaiian shirt, as the employer, you'd argue I can only you're only entitled to a reasonable reimbursement we didn't require and it's the concept comes up a lot in travel first class travel it's like hey we're sending you to the restaurant conference whatever it is the employee gets on a flight first class and you know gives you a thousand dollar reimbursement receipt you reimburse for five hundred dollars because you say that's the price of the coach ticket you could have we're requiring you to get there but we didn't tell you you had to go first class okay so do you have to specify like the you're not allowed to spend more than this on a shirt or something like that? Uh, that's Reimbursement policies, typically, um, they have that for that reason. So there's no discrepancy later um, about what you were asking the employee, what expense you were asking them to incur. If you don't have a cap on it, to your point, the employee can go out and buy a really expensive Hawaiian shirt okay. and say, this is what I thought I needed. Cool. Anything else in, in that vertical? That it's state by state. Um, these are It's another state by state issue. So there's lots of states that don't have a reimbursement requirement, don't have a, a uniform requirement as strict as California or states like New York. Okay. So I guess um, that's that's wrapped up, right? That Yes, that's wrapped up. Okay. Number 16 then. I guess that was 15. That's number right. 16. Uh, tips versus service charges. So we're new. 16 is tips and 17 is service charges. Gotcha. So to, to kind of lay the groundwork there, um, tips are truly voluntary. Right there is someone a, a customer can decide to leave it or not. Um, yeah, you can have a suggested amount, but it's not added in. Um, it's not a mandatory amount versus a service charge um, where you often see it at the bottom of a bill parties of six or more automatic 20% gratuity. Um, that's an automatic charge or you'll see restaurants now that say, you know, 5% added for whatever for operations or for um, healthcare costs or various things. Um, the first step as an operator is you have to categorize these into two different buckets because the rules are completely different from a tax perspective, from a wage hour perspective, um, you know, really from a reporting perspective, from every perspective. And so you have to look as an operator, where, where are these things happening, right? I, I have a lot of situations where I'll say, do you use service charges? No, we don't do that. And I say, okay, let me see your catering contracts. 
and at the, in the catering contract or the private event or the buyout agreement, whatever you want to call it, it says right there, 18% automatically added. I'm like, well, there you go. I'm like, what are you doing with that amount? Oh, you know, we just give it to the servers. They just have it. We treat it like tips. I'm like, well, it's not tips. There's different <laughs> rules. Um, and so you, you have to look really as an operator and capture all of these and, and not what you call it. It's, it's whether you're adding it or not. And so going back to 16 tips itself, right? It's highly regulated. It's different in each state. Um, it, it was controversial because very recently because a lot of employers have mandatory tip pooling policies, um, which basically says, look, um, whoever gets the tip, um, you've got to put it into a pool and we're going to share it with everybody or share it with certain people. Used to be that you couldn't share that with people in the back of the house. Okay. Now you can. Okay. So what's the big difference between a tip and uh, a service search? Just like lay it's, that out the, one more the time. The tip belongs to the employee. Okay. Um, and so, or who the tip belongs to whom it's left. Okay. So if I, you know, if I'm eating, I leave a hundred dollars on the table. That's, that is who the, the server that picks it up. That's their money. Um, that's not the house's money. That's not the, that's not the company's money that doesn't get paid as wages. It doesn't get paid through payroll. There's no sales tax on that amount of money. Um, that's, that's almost a transaction entirely between the customer and the server. Okay. Um, so where it gets, where it becomes a service charge is when the restaurant steps in and then takes the money. Well, no, no, no. What, what happens is, is that is it's always a tip, right? Because that whether it's a tip or service charge is determined solely by is it mandatory or not at that point in time? Is the restaurant saying this is a mandatory charge or is the okay. customer leaving it? If gotcha. the customer leaves it, again, it's like, who am I leaving it to? They leave it to the server. So that's their money. And then how, how it's governed, the restaurant can tell servers, whoever gets the tip, pool those monies together and we're going to share it among you. What the restaurant cannot do is take it themselves. Gotcha. Um, and there's different state laws in each state. A service charge, though, is just like money they took into the restaurant, right? If I had a service charge of you know twenty percent for parties of six or more, that's the same thing as me making my hamburger on the menu ten dollars and raising it to twelve dollars. That extra two dollars, that extra twenty percent, call it a service charge, call it upping the prices. It's the house's money, okay. And so when it gets paid back out, it's got to be paid out like anything else paid out to employees, you know, as wages. Mm-hmm. So a lot of employers run into trouble because they'll do something that's a service charge and they'll treat it like tips. Well you, well, you really ran into problems there, right? You didn't tax yeah. it correctly. Yep. Um, it didn't go through payroll. Also, you run into the problem I talked about earlier, which is you paid out a flat amount to employees. It's a bonus, basically, without yeah, putting it into overtime. Say, so now you got to consider this as overtime. Correct. Yeah. And so it's very complicated when you're going to introduce service charges. You've basically got a whole other pay scheme. Okay. So what what would you say the best practice is when it comes to tips versus um, service charges? What, what would you recommend restaurant owners lean towards? Oh, uh, I would recommend a individualized approach. You look at your concept, you look at your customer base and you decide, am I going to be all tips? Am I going to be all service charge? One or the other, which is easy, which is easier. And even on the all service charge, you can refuse to, you can say, don't accept tips. But if the person, if the customer tips that just, it belongs to the worker. So if you do tips, the, the tip model, you're kind of removing the, the, the responsibility from yourself. It yes. becomes their responsibility at this point. Unless you want to decide to pool the tips, right? So you're, you're, the decision tree is, are we going to do tips or service charges? Um, if tips, are we going to have the servers or the tip receivers pool the tips? If service charges, are we going to pay it back to the employees or, or are we going to keep it for the house? 
Um, either way, or is there a third path, which is the hybrid approach, which a lot of restaurants are doing without realizing, oh, it's tip only except in these narrow situations, six or more private events where we're doing service charges. And in that situation, have your payroll provider have the two parallel paths set up so you can pay out the service charges and the tips to the employee in the right way. Would you say it's best practice to lean one direction or the other to simplify things? Yeah, and but you know, look, revenue is king, and so I don't. I, the last thing I want to do is be a lawyer who comes in and tells the operator like Nothing sacrifice like that. revenue because you think this is easier from a compliance. I yeah, would say be though, be, I would say that before you make the decision, play it all out because I've seen too many operators say I want to go service charge, and then when they realize how it's going to play out and the administrative headache behind it, they then backtrack. But that's a little late so after they've already introed it. Got you. Okay, I think we've sewed that one up pretty good, uh, and I believe we're about to go into the third bucket, which is yes. harassment and conduct. But before we do one more quick break to thank our sponsors let's get real grease is a fact of life in any commercial kitchen but with the grease fighting power of dom professional manual pot and pan from png professional you'll clean more dishes in every sink compared to leading private label dom professional has the power you need to fight tough grease and get those squeaky clean dishes you're looking for with long lasting suds that clean up to 58 percent more dishes per sink and reduce sink changeovers by 35 percent saving you up to six thousand gallons of hot water per year versus private label it's no wonder Don Professional is the number one dish detergent in the U.S. P&G Professional's complete restaurant cleaning program includes products, equipment, and 24-7 service to deliver a noticeable clean that will keep your patrons coming back time and time again. To learn more, go to www.pgpro.com and experience the grease-fighting power of Don Professional dishwashing liquid. You can find Don Professional at Sam's Club or by visiting samsclub.com slash Professional. Now go get it. If you're sick of paying multiple vendors and services to outfit your restaurant needs only to deal with the frustrations of technology that's clunky and void of that seamless experience that you so need, then you've got to check out Restaurant 365, a cloud-based restaurant-specific accounting and back office platform that seamlessly integrates with your POS system, payroll provider, food and beverage vendors, and banks. With Restaurant 365, you'll have real-time reporting and analysis to make the best and most data-driven decisions. No more guessing. Other features include detailed daily and labor data from your POS system, accounts payable automation, automated bank reconciliation, incorporated inventory management with guidance on reducing your food costs, and scheduling features to reduce labor costs and engage your employees, all saving you time, money, and headaches. Take action today and find out how Restaurant 365 is saving restaurant owners up to 5% of on prime costs. That's awesome. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and get a free inventory build within the system, a value of 5k. Okay. We're back and let's get into it. Um, we're into the third bucket: harassment and conduct, anti-harassment training and policies. What do you got? Me too. It's, uh, you know, even before me too, I, the restaurant is a restaurant operators had a unique task in fighting off harassment claims because it's not an office, it's not a law firm, it's not an accounting firm um, where you're at cubicles and um, there's not a lot of situation for fun social interaction. You're in the hospitality environment. You're literally, you know, the workplace. You're also simultaneously for the customers trying to create a nice experience. So a lot of the times, um, you know, and 
you'll have your employees in that experience, right? And so you come to a law firm, you're dressed stuffy. You go to a restaurant, the servers are not typically dressed stuffy um, unless it's a stuffy restaurant. So you have all these unique um, things that, that make the environment a little bit different and that are more prone to harassment, right? I, I think Jason, you know, you had him on the yeah. last one. The, his One of his book is like, you know, don't let someone on your couch or someone like that or don't sleep please with the hostess. Please don't sleep with the host. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's right. It doesn't say please don't sleep with the secretary. It says please don't sleep with the host. Um, now, it, it, that doesn't mean that it's okay. I, I, there's one standard for all industries uh, for anti-harassment law federally and, and state by state. It, they don't look at the industry and say, oh, well, you know, it's a restaurant and there's alcohol being served, so it's okay that someone like this restaurant can have F-bombs fly because, you know, it's not a law firm where you should be more buttoned up. No, the law doesn't work like that. Um, and the law does not work in a way that says, well, they know what they're coming. They know what they're getting themselves into here. There's a sports bar. If they come here, they're going to get loud, drunk dudes. Like, no, it doesn't work like that as, as a female. Yeah, they're working at Hooters. Well, yeah, funny. Hooters is very, very unique in the law. But I won't even get into that. <laughs> um, but, you know, absent Hooters or something way out there. On the, is there really a, a, a separate? There, there's, a, there's a concept in the law that you're not there. You're auditioning for a role. You're not actually a server, but, you know, it, it's a role because the concept is so ingrained. You're auditioning for a role. So that's why at Hooters, they, you know, they make the argument they can hire females and not male servers because that's part of um, their whole concept. It's part of their brand. What, same for Twin Peaks. I, yes, I would say I would say I would make the same argument, but they're factual. And every time a client's asked me, "Hey, can we do it?" I've said, "You're not going to meet the standard," you know. And so, it's it's out there. Um, so that's why when you eat your your customer, you're like, "How does Hooters get away with it? You know, how does this person get away with it?" Um, I'm I don't, a new hey, concept called banana ham. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, why don't you just do a melting, you know, melting pie? You could have this yeah. like sideways, like a uh, pineapple here, and that could right. be the logo. Um, I it, it, first, you don't know if they're quote unquote getting away with it, whoever they are. Um, a lot, of, you know, there is no, there's really no black and the white in law, and so a lot of times, you know, you're getting sued on it and settling suits, or you're doing something, you're figuring out a way on why this works for you um, as a concept. But you know, that's the very, 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 very small percentage. Most of the time. Um, it's like any other environment. You need to make sure it's a fair place for male and female. You need to make sure that um, when they come to work, it's not just that they're being hit on themselves. It's that the environment is not over-sexualized. Um, a lot of states, including California, have harassment training requirements. And so I get this question all the time. Well, what happens if I don't train the people? Well, what's, you know, the first 30 days they've got to be trained. Well, I, you know, we're having an event and then we're going to be dark for like two months. Like I have to train them before the event. Well, yeah, you're hiring them technically and, that's why you should block out an onboarding process where like the first week that they're an employee employee of yours, they go through the step-by-step process to make sure all these boxes are being checked. That's right. And it's not just because cause then the next question, they say, well, what happens if I don't train them? What's the penalty? Well, there's no statutory penalty. It's not a million bucks per employee if they don't get, you know, for every day they're not trained after 30. What it is, though, is it's it's pretty bad evidence. If that employee is going to go do something and, and harass someone or engage in inappropriate conduct... And then, you know, it, you're before a court, jury, arbitrator, I don't care who it is. And the question comes up, well, what employer did you do to let them know that, like, as a workplace, like, we don't tolerate this? Oh, I gave them an employee handbook. I, they tossed in the drawer, and I didn't even train them as I was required. That doesn't sound good. Yeah. And But this isn't me saying train them just to comply with the law. It's, it's to your point, it's, it's to set the tone. Mm-hmm. You can have compliant anti-harassment training in, in a in a way that communicates your brand, your message, the tone, because all culture, your yeah. culture, what you're talking about is how you relate to your coworker. Yeah. Um, you know, and so 
yeah, it, it's legal legalese in, in the handbook. A lot of times it says don't you know do this because of their age, race, you know, the, the long litany of 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 protected classes. But it's also don't do it because don't be a dick, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. it says, don't yell based on any of these things, but don't yell because it's a bad management tactic. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can use that to ingrain the message. Okay. Um, and this is required by law to have these trainings in place now. As of recently or soon to be, but there is a little bit of a delay. I, California I um, for years has had the requirement that if you're a supervisor, meaning if you supervise at least one person, you have to have the training, okay. um, anti-harassment training. They've now amended the law, California, to say anyone, supervisor or not, will have to have the training. That comes into play 2021, the effectiveness. Okay. Um, a little bit of a unique aspect by the timing. I've advised people don't wait. Train now. Um, don't wait for it to be a requirement. You're already training your supervisors. It's just as important as that at a line level, non-supervisor employee not engage in this behavior. Okay. Now, is there has to be a policy, a documented policy, and I think this um, anti-harassment or um, theft uh, reporting system? There has to be a... There, most states have requirements that you have to have an anti-harassment and a reporting policy. So Fraudulent you, or, or uh, misconduct. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's, an, it's a, a path that an employee can report the harassment. That's the concept. They need, is, they need to know what to do when it happens. That's right. The policy is not just have a policy that says don't harass each other. It's a policy that says that if you do feel like you're being harassed, this is and the steps what? you take. Yeah. Exactly. And that needs to be documented. Yeah. And, and most states have laws um, that require investigations. I mean, I equate it to the NCAA. I'm, I'm surprised I went this far without a sports analogy. But, you know, <laughs> the NCAA, it's self-investigation, right? If they think there's a violation, then they tell the school, you got to investigate yourself. It's the same thing with the, with the employment law. If, if an employee says... I feel like I'm being harassed. The employer is under a legal obligation to then do an investigation. If not, harassment or not, the employer ran into trouble because they didn't respond properly. Mm-hmm. And so it's, again, back to the concept of don't just have a policy and throw it in the drawer. Have the policy, show it to employees, use it during the training, and then when someone complains about harassment, get that policy out and follow it. Investigate. Yeah. Yep. And I'm going to give my friend um, over at Ethics Suite, Juliet Gus, uh, a uh, nod here. They have a... The, the, they have a process for reporting fraudulence and misconduct. Uh, it's a free service for your employees. So all you have to do is adopt this process into your business if you want to check that box. It's uh, pretty powerful stuff there. So um, on to the fourth bucket. That's right. And 19 is the the list. We're almost done, guys. We're, we're almost there. Thank you for – this is a lot of important stuff. No offense to our, our, our guy over here, Aaron. It might be a little dry, but we have to get through it because it's so critical. And hopefully we've talked you out of opening a restaurant at this point. Um, 19, leave a... Um, that was it? a good... Com- that was a real compliment that you just gave me? <laughs> I can't tell. Okay, keep going. No, you're doing great, man. You're actually making this a lot less boring than it could be. So I appreciate that. There you go. Uh, leave, Exceeding expectations. Leave of absence. Get into it. Um it's its own bucket because it's really tricky in restaurants. Yeah. Um, you know, some environments, again, law firms, if someone's going to be absent, they call in sick, okay, the place is going to get by. Um, if you are a restaurant, you're watching labor costs, you're scheduling people in a certain way, and if a server calls, all of a sudden you're down to server, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so restaurants, and then you have a documentation issue, right? Someone comes in and says, ow, my leg hurts. You know, I, I sprained my ankle playing basketball over the weekend. You know, can I not have to cover section eight over there? That's got a lot, you know, spread out tables. Can I do section four? That sounds pretty innocuous, but what they're really doing is, is engaging you in the interactive process and they're seeking a reasonable accommodation. Yeah. And all of a sudden now as an employer, you've got an obligation to respond a certain way. And so you've got to be aware that when employees come to you and they raise a medical issue at all, you have to think formulaically, okay, 
what protections or what rights do they have? Um, what benefits do they have? Do they have paid sick leave? Okay, they've exhausted that. Um, are they asking for a vacation day? Am I going to grant it or not? I'm not going to grant it because they didn't give me two weeks heads up. Um, what are, is it a disability? Have they given me a note? Or is it just they said they have a runny nose or they're hungover? Um, okay, they gave me a note. How did I respond to this? Um, did they get injured? On, was it on the job? Did, they, did we give them the workers' comp form? Um, all right, do, am I allowed to ask what the medical issue is? Most states you can. California, you cannot. And so, you know, someone comes in and says, I hurt my ankle over the weekend. You know, can I just roll napkins? Um, they, you can't say, how'd you hurt your ankle? Um, what you can say is, how long is your ankle going to be? Can I get a doctor's note talking about, like, what the restrictions are? Not that you roll your ankle playing basketball or whatever, but the note that how does it impact work? Um, and then the concept of, you know, these extended leaves, right? Some, there's, if you're a large organization, you have the FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, or the state equivalent, which says, you know, it's sometimes unpaid leave for 12 weeks. And, you know, it's a lot because someone could come back. You're holding a job open for three or four months sometimes. And, yeah. And so it's what happens, I see this mistake frequently, is that the employer will say, okay, their FMLA leave expired. Okay, are they back? They're not back. Boom, they're fired. And it's like, they didn't come back from leave. Sorry, they, we gave them the FMLA leave. That's all the protected leave they have. They're fired. No, that's not all of it. You have, um, there's still an employee that's disabled. Just because they've, they've exhausted or used all their FMLA leave doesn't mean they're not disabled. If you're disabled, the ADA protects you. Um, a type of accommodation can be extended leave. And so at that point, you can't just say, um, I've satisfied the FMLA. Now I'm free to terminate. If I feel like it, you've got to look at the ADA and say, what do I have to do under this statute? Oftentimes, it's just recognizing it and it's extending it out a little more. If the employee's not going to come back because of whatever circumstances, then you're okay because indefinite leave, you don't have to grant under the ADA. But if you've got a situation where it's three months, they're out, they've satisfied their FMLA leave, they've given you a doctor's note that says, I'm going to be back in two weeks. If you terminate you're gonna, and then the employee sues, you're going to have to explain why it was an undue burden to give them two more weeks. Mm. Because it's, because due to the doctor no, it's it's telling only you it's reasonable a, up to this point. That's right. It's a, they're giving you a timeline, and and you know the timeline is something that as a large organization, are you going to be able to say it's you know could I have done this or not? And so when you hear accommodations and mod, you often think it's modified duty. Well, reasonable accommodation, I don't have to do that. I, you know, they give you a note that says I can't lift you know anything more than a pound. Uh, and, you know, and maybe the person also can't speak English in the back of the house. You have, I have nothing to do for you. Sorry, mm-hmm. nothing. You're fired. No, because then it's, you go to, well, how long is this? It's two weeks. Well, the reasonable accommodation can be unpaid leave. Okay. And so that's the concept that the takeaway is on leave of absence, that under the ADA, when you have someone that's got a medical issue, it's impacting their ability to do work. You've got to ask yourself, like, can I give them unpaid leave as a reasonable accommodation before you move to termination? Okay. And the reason that... in the, the the things to do to make sure that you can't do that is the doctor's note. Um, yeah, ask for a doctor's note. I mean, the, the, at the end of the day, if you're getting into a, a, a he said, she said, or a dispute about what the medical issue is, you, that shouldn't even be a conversation. It's the doctor note controls. Mm. And But how you ask for it, give, give a form, right, from your HR department or your legal counsel that, you know, discusses and, and clearly ask the doctor for what you can ask for and, and attaches the job description back to the job description. So in this situation, here's the job description, a server. A server has to be able to lift, has to be able to X, has to be able to Y, has to be able to Z. You give that job description with a form to the, to the server and says, go take this to your doctor. The doctor then can look at the description and say, okay, for two weeks, the server can't do this, this, and this. 
then it's clear as day when the server brings that back to you what you have to do. Okay. What about exempt employees? Same. There is no di- distinction here. Exempt or non-exempt, they can be injured or not. You have to still engage in your active process. And if it's salary, um, is, can it be non-paid leave? Yes. Okay. Um, there, it's, it's nuanced. If they perform any work during the day, though, you're going to have to pay them. And okay. so on. If, if, and that comes up a lot. So if you have someone on FMLA leave and they're an exempt employee, um, you know, turn off their email. Don't give them the opportunity to do work. Don't be calling them. Yeah. Um, because not only is it, you know, argument that they should be paid for that day, but that's one day that they didn't get their FMLA leave. So you're going to have to extend it on the back end. Got you. Anything worth unpackaging beyond this with uh, the leave of absence? When you're going to terminate for an absence-related termination, you know, tardies, absences, whatever it is, you better look at each absence you're holding the person accountable for and make sure it's not protected. Make sure it's not sick leave, not ADA leave, not FMLA leave, because that's what the lawyer is going to be looking at. Yeah, uh, a.k.a. have your lawyer look at it. Absence-based terminations <laughs> yeah. are tricky. Yeah, I would, I would get some a, a second opinion there. Yeah, you catch someone stealing and it's on camera, that's a lot stronger than if you're saying you've been late six times. Yeah, I got you. Okay, so this is the last item. We did it. We made it through 20 of these compliances. Good job, guys, and thank you so much, Aaron. Uh, you've been talking a lot, and I appreciate you. Number 20, termination decisions. Get into it. So the the concept of, okay, I've I've decided as an operator I'm no longer this employee's not capable of rehabilitation they're not going to be coached what I'm expecting out of them I'm not going to get from them I've made the decision to terminate okay so what do you do um they're at will which means you don't need a reason um but at will is limited by the fact that you cannot terminate for something discriminatory or retaliatory um discriminatory is anything that's a protected class age race um gender sexual orientation military status um veteran status um citizenship what if they smell bad they smell bad probably probably okay itself but smell bad could be why are they smell bad do they smell bad because of a religious practice do they smell bad because you think something smells bad but it's really like that's part of their race or who they are or part of like you know inherently yeah um you know there's so you, this comes up it's it's not a black and white thing right it's it, tattoos is an area so a lot of times you have policies that'll say, you know, we're going to terminate you if you have like tattoos that are showing. Like they come in, they have tattoos, you know, they're, they're, they don't have their sleeves on that day and they're working the cash register and they've got these gnarly sleeves and, of tattoos and they get terminated. Um, and one of, this, one of the tattoos um, is a cross. Mm. And the employee says, I got, t- I got terminated because I was displaying my, my religious cross. That's religious discrimination. And the employer says, no, 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 we, we terminated you because you showed your tattoos. didn't matter what was in the tattoos. And then the employee says, well, show me all the other times you've terminated employees for tattoos. And so when you're making termination decisions, you want to be able to link it to something in your policies. That's why you have the handbook. And, so, and, and also when you make the determination, you know, create a piece of evidence. You know, email your HR team. The decision's been made. We're terminating. Um, because you'll see a lot of times employees will hear about it and you know, I might be terminated. Next thing you know, they take a medical leave or they complain about something and it changes the risk profile, the termination, because the timing looks different of the story because it makes it look like, hey, the employee was fine. We were just warning them and all of a sudden they complained about harassment. That's the straw that both camels back the guys to terminate. That's called retaliation. That would be a wrongful termination. Okay. And, and the other thing is, is that even though you're at will, discrimination, every, everyone fits into a protected category. You know, I make the joke if you're a young, healthy, you know, white, straight male, but even then you can have reverse discrimination on any of those categories. So uh, when you make the decision that, that you bring up a real serious thing where like reverse discrimination, where it's almost becoming like a bad thing to be a white male because you're like, you're the bad guy. 
You well, know what I mean? Like I feel like the re- like I feel like the minorities are grouping together as one sometimes and coming at the majority as the the because is that weird to say? Uh, like, no, I, I understand what you're saying. I think the better way to put it is is that everyone understands their rights and everyone realizes that the rights are protecting all of them. And so it, before it would just be you terminated someone and they thought, well, you know what, it was because of my race. Um, where and you think, well, the white guy's not going to think that. Whereas now everyone thinks that because we're in a highly racialized environment, right? We're we're in a high, an environment that it's front and center who we are, what we're doing. Well, you look at like an ethnic restaurant. Oh, well, right, exactly. So any ethnic, whether it be, I'm I'm not even going to get into it, but an ethnic restaurant, and you as a white male can't get a job there. Is that legal? No, it's not legal because it doesn't matter whether you're white or you know what side it is. You, the employer can't make decisions based on your ethnicity. Period. End of story. Um, and so it doesn't ma- It doesn't place a higher regard on certain ethnicities. Um, you know, age is age discrimination is a good concept for this. Age discrimination federal law says forty years old. You have to be forty years old to be quote unquote old. <laughs> um, but you're still allowed to sue for reverse discrimination. You know, as a you could still sue as a 35-year-old, and, and your claim could be, I wasn't hired because of my age. They, it was, I was too young. Um, do I, Prevalence of it to your question about am I seeing it more? No, I, I'm not seeing it more. I, I, I just, I think it, I see employers trying to do a good thing and trying to oftentimes like hire consistent with their brand, and sometimes it comes off as you know making or taking things into account that you're not supposed to be considering, like age, race, and all these other things. On a termination, though, the, the the concept that I wanted to get to is that when you're terminating, you're going to have a reason. You're going to, you know, in the meeting, you're going to you're gonna explain the reason. You're being terminated because we caught you stealing. Okay. At the same time, I don't care what it is. You you're not wishing harm on this person. Um, and a lot of times, you have managers terminating, and it's like that moment of power, and they're exerting the power, and that's not good for the organization. It's creating risk. Um, it's being a bad human, but it's also creating risk mm-hmm. because you're incentivizing the person they terminate to go get an attorney to go challenge it because you're, you're what? You're being a jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, you can terminate and still be consistent about what the reasons are. You weren't meeting our expectations and be empathetic at the same mm-hmm. time. And so a lot of times, you know, they say, well, I caught him stealing. Why would I give him a separation agreement? I say, you give him a separation agreement because you'd still rather know that they're not going to sue you. Um, even though you gave them their meal and rest breaks, they still may sue you for it. If um, you take the high road, it's always going to serve you. Yeah, you take the high road, and it's often it's often worth it. And you can still say, "Listen, you're terminated. Today's your last day. It's Wednesday. We caught you on camera stealing yesterday. At the same time, you know, we hope you transition somewhere to be successful, and we'll pay you through Friday. Here's a separation agreement if you want to pay through Friday. Either way, here's your pay that we owe you. And if you want some extra pay, here's a separation okay. agreement. So I think the big things to take away from this um, is to stay away from the big like the the race, sex, gender, uh, sexual. Um, preference yeah make decisions based on make decisions based on a legitimate business reason not who the person is but what they're doing okay um and also we kind of skimmed over a little a little bit but the importance of having your policies right and your your company policies like this is who we expect you to be cleanliness uh organized uh if you're going to terminate someone ideally it's it's because they violated a policy. I mean, it could just be the performance policy. It could be the attendance policy, but it could be a specific reason. So yeah, having those policies in place so you can later prove we have a rule, we enforce it against you, not 
we just picked a rule out of thin air and we terminated you and it's really because you're African-American yeah. or because you're old or because whatever. I think hygiene is a good one because that's one that people, if, mm-hmm. they, if they're just not taking care of themselves, mm-hmm. if they're, they're unpleasant uh, because of neglect to mm-hmm. themselves. Like that's one that like an example, if you got to put that in your policies. Yeah, it, a, a, a per, professional appearance policy, yeah. personal hygiene. Yeah, I think the uniform. Th- yeah, uniform. The important thing there is enforce it equally mm-hmm. because you don't want – um, someone saying, well, you're only terminating this group of people. Um, only, only the women are being terminated if they have poor hygiene, but the men are, you're tolerating it, right? That would be discriminatory. Got you, got you. Anything else worth unpackaging with this, uh, determine, determining, sorry, termination decisions? Um, have a process in your company, right? Understand who gets to make the decision, understand who puts in the input, and then once the decision is made, who carries it out. Okay, and uh, we didn't touch on this, but the importance of having a witness? It depends on the situation. I think it, if you think it could be a dicey, yeah, it's, a, it's good. Um, but when you're having people in the termination room, you have to ask yourself, like, is it going to set off the employee or is it going to cause the employee to think, like, why is this person here? Um, and so a lot of it is about EQ, um, not the legal answer. And it's, it's about having being able to communicate what the reason is um, but still having trying not to have an explosive situation. So basically just be very factual. Like, we That's discussed right. this. Um, you uh, you acknowledge that we had this discussion, documented, and this is the reason why we have to. Let yeah, you go. I, I think the concept is that you don't want to. You're not trying to get them to agree with you. Yeah, you're, you're trying to communicate. You know, we have a standard here. It's it's a performance standard. Um, we raised this with you. You weren't meeting it with regard to X Y Z. Yeah. Um, and you know, because of that, we decided to end the employment relationship. And so we're here to talk about how we're going to end it. If they start trying to get into like why, it's like, listen, we're, we're not here to discuss the decisions been made. What we are here to discuss is the process and how we're going to go about it. And so we're here, we have your Cobra dot, you know, and then you, you transition into the process. Okay. And is the process long in, is it short enough to kind of just like list the bullet points that should uh, be included? Yeah, I think the, pro- I mean, typically you want to ask yourself, um, return a company property on um, what the last day is, the final paycheck. You want to make sure it's, it's evident to the employee and you're following the state law. Like here's all your money for what you're owed. You want to make sure that if you're offering them a severance agreement that um, you're not using the money you owe them for work as, as the carrot. Like that's being paid to them and it's, it's and a severance payment. Um, you want to be conscious of when you're doing it and how you're doing it, right? Don't do it you know, in the middle of a big customer rush. Yeah. Um, who does it? Um, and then giving them a point of contact for after the termination, um, you know, be conscious. Are you just going to let them come back in the restaurant? I mean, are they, are they going to be able to come in as a customer? Um, Setting those expectations. Right. Got you. Um, one thing that comes up often on the show is uh, when things aren't working out, a, a good way to, to look at it is, hey, like my job is to set the people that come to work for me up for success. If being here isn't going to – if you're not inclined to this type of work, if you're not – like if this isn't the right path for you, it's my obligation as an employer to put to get you off this path and help you find the next path. Do you do you think that is overstepping boundaries? Yeah, I, I don't think it's. I, I liked everything you said up until the point that it's yeah. my obligation to find you something else. Maybe not, but but the, I guess the mentality. That the you mentality have is is that we want happy off. workers yeah. here, and if you know if we're really running into issues, like you're not hearing me about some of your, you're not improving where I'm telling you to. Yeah, you can have the conversation of are are you happy here? Yeah. Um, don't have that conversation if you plan to terminate the person because you don't want to mislead them like they have the job. Yeah. But I do think it's okay to say to – like give the person the opportunity to resign sometimes if they want. Sometimes people are unhappy and they they want to get fired so they can collect unemployment. Um, or sometimes they don't realize they're unhappy. Um, and so it's okay as an employer to say, look, are you, un, are you unhappy here? Do you want to talk about it? What is this? Do you feel like you can be successful here? 
Got you, got you. This has been a great conversation, man, and I can tell that the the headset's starting to, to dig in a no, little no, bit. No, no, we're good, we're it's, good. <laughs> it's an I, hour I, and 40 minutes, but uh, very important stuff. We got a lot of it, and I think you explained it very well. Thank you so much. Um, I wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody that you respect and admire? Uh, it doesn't have to be independent. It could be a, a corporate or a franchise, but uh, who's somebody you respect and admire uh, who's impressed you and your your encounters in this vertical of hospitality that you'd recommend I get on the show? That was uh, Brad Rubin. Brad Rubin, uh, 11 City Diner, which is a very successful diner in Chicago, and he has a, another successful one. He's opened in Los Angeles here. Brad Rubin. Brad Rubin. He just he does he loves the industry. He he he's one of those people that the second you walk into his uh his operation, he's there. Nice. Um and he really just knows it top to bottom and, and I I think he a lot of valuable insight. And you know, if I you know, hospitality is a people industry, even in the management, and he's the type of person I'd invest in. Beautiful. Brad Rubin, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show and let the folks at home know um, how can we connect with you? You're in California, so it's probably specific to the state. Uh, maybe we want to hire you. Maybe uh, we want to ask a question. What's the best way to connect? Um, for me, I mean, California employment law, yes, but we do all types of employment law. We're really, we have a huge restaurant um, legal practice at Davis Wright Tremaine, best in the nation, in my opinion. And so if you really have any legal issues, you contact me, um, you Google me, Aaron Colby, A-A-R-O-N-C-O-L-B-Y. Like the cheese. Like the cheese. Um, and the first hit is my online bio and you get in touch with me there. Um, I'll, I, I'll help an employment law issue, but if it's any other restaurant related issue, I'll get you to the right person. Right. Any social handles worth mentioning? Are you on? Uh, no, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can okay. definitely, uh, you can get me there. <laughs> Man, uh, you are a lawyer. Yeah, no, I have Instagram and I have Facebook. I have them all, but it's not a, it's not a I work one. So. I got you. All right, cool. Thank you so much. For Thank you for having me. This has been great. I it really appreciate it. Man. Thank you so much. And there is no questioning, my man, Aaron, you are unstoppable. Cheers. There you go. Another episode in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Aaron Colby, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, diving deep, deep, deep into the world of uh, just covering your ass with legal shit. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't even know where to start with unpackaging this episode. Uh, An hour and 45 minutes of the 20 hotspots uh, of employee legal or the, the 20 employee legal hotspots. Uh, thank you so much, Aaron. Uh, and you know, times are tough right now in the industry. Uh, let's get real. Um, but there's uh, some silver lining to all this. Uh, we have some slow time. Uh, if you're one of those restaurants that chose to close during this time, maybe some of you are still hustling, doing uh, pickup orders and delivery. And if that's the case, good. Uh, I'm happy to hear some people are, are, aren't as affected by this as others. But if you did take the time to, or you, you made the decision to close your business altogether to uh, kind of weather the storm and get tight during these uncertain times, make use of this time by working on your business. We always complain in this industry that there's just no time to work on the business because there's just so much to do. Well, in the event that you have some free time, this is the kind of episode that you want to be listening to. Uh, this is the kind of stuff you can be listening to to make yourself better and your business better uh, and, and make the most of this quote-unquote downtime. I know it doesn't feel like downtime. It probably feels like your head's about to spin off. But 
redirect that energy into being productive. Redirect that energy into making your business better and educating yourself. And hopefully uh, this episode has helped you do that a little bit. And um, I don't know if you guys have caught this, but I've been filling space in between these uh, traditional episodes with uh, something that I'm calling the Corona Chronicles. And during the, these, this difficult time, I'm trying to figure out how I can be of service. What what can I do to, to help this industry get through this challenging time. And I think just using my platform to, to, uh, or offering my platform to let other leaders in the industry stand on it and share what they're doing in their business to, to get through this difficult time, sharing best practices, sharing the reality of the situation, just like letting you guys know that you're not alone. And also I think it's really important that we get aligned so we can pull in the same direction and get through, and get through this thing faster. So make sure you're, you're listening to those Corona Chronicles and, uh, just my, my heart's going out to you guys, and I wish you all the best luck through this turbulent time in our industry. Uh, stay positive, hustle, grind, and uh, we'll get through this together. All right, peace out, guys.